<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This episode of Postmortem with Mick Garris is sponsored by the amazing Scream Factory. Scream Factory produces special edition Blu-rays of a lot of our favorite films within the genre. In fact, they have a collection of nearly 400 Blu-rays featuring some of the best horror, sci-fi, and cult films ever made. Out this month, Return of the Living Dead 2, The Amazing Straightjacket with The Amazing Joan Crawford, William Castle's classic The Tingler, but without the buzzing seats, I'm guessing, The Unborn, and Brain Scan. New editions are released every month. In fact, coming soon from Screen Factory, finally... The long-awaited uh, Blu-ray premiere of my debut feature film as a director, Critters 2, a special edition with lots of things you've never seen or heard before, and my first Stephen King movie, Sleepwalkers, will also be getting the Scream Factory treatment with lots of interviews, lots of behind-the-scenes footage, and a lot of things that we can't talk about yet. Anyway, for more information, Follow at Scream Factory on Twitter and Scream Factory DVD on Facebook. Amazing stuff. We live in fear. Fear of failure, commitment, each other, and beyond. It's one of the few things that unites us all. Salem, Massachusetts knows this more than most, which is why Salem Horror Fest will return this October to explore societal themes of fear and anxiety in the Halloween capital of the world. Prepare yourself for two weeks of terror with screenings, panels, podcasts, special guests, parties, premieres, and more in the haunted and historic Witch City. Raise hell with Linnea Quigley and George C. Romero. Conjure demons with the faculty of horror and repent before the latest film from Darren Lynn Bowsman. Behold Wolfman's Nards with Monster Squad's Andre Gower and relive your kinder trauma for the New England premiere of the Scary Stories documentary. Ryan Turek will present the opening night keynote speech on October 4th, followed by the 30th anniversary celebration of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Cassandra Peterson. Tickets and weekend passes are available now. To overcome fear, we must first understand it. SalemHorror.com And just a note, I first went to Salem when I was researching the script I was writing for Hocus Pocus, and I was so blown away by it and the celebration that they give to Halloween and that season, I went back for another four or five years in a row. It's an amazing place, and this is an amazing place to have a festival like this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. Well, it may not sound like it, but I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Postmortem Podcast. We are live in Montreal, Quebec, at the Fantasia Film Festival. Where last night we had the world premiere of our new movie, Nightmare Cinema, which is an anthology horror film that uh, I was lucky enough to make with Ryuhei Kitamura, Joe Dante, Alejandro Bruges, and David Slade. Everyone is here except for David, who is in the UK shooting Black Mirror. And we had our premiere last night. All of these people here were there and hopefully had a great time. And we're going to talk a little bit about how the movie came about. And we'll even take some audience questions. So because of last night, my voice is not the usual dulcet tones that you're used to. <laughs> so uh, we also have longtime Fangoria editor and Fantasia programmer Tony Timpone here to help me uh, do the podcast and co-host with me. So thank you, Tony. <laughs> we also have... The writers of the film, Sandra Besseril, uh, Lawrence, uh, <laughs> okay, Lawrence uh, Donnelly, and Richard Christian Matheson here. 
uh, and we'll also throw some questions to them in a bit. But on our panel are the directors. And Tony, let's kick it off. Yeah, so Mick, tell us how your film, Nightmare <laughs> Cinema, developed out of um, Masters of Horror. Well, after Masters of Horror uh, had its run and it looked like it was coming to an end, uh, I wanted to do something more international in the same vein. And because we had done a Japanese edition in each uh, season, we actually shot in Japan, I thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to do an episode in a different country with a director from that country every week? And my ambition was a little more far-reaching than financiers' ambitions. They didn't want to do that. So I thought of a series of movies where we did that in different countries where under the umbrella title Nightmare Cinema. So we'd do like 90-minute horror features, each one in a different country, and maybe do one or two a year. Um, So here it is a dozen years later where the concept that actually did manage to get greenlit and into production was the idea of five different stories Uh, in one feature film with a wraparound segment. And uh, even though they were all shot in L.A., uh, Joe uh, Joe Dante and I are the token Americans. And then we have Alejandro Bugues from Cuba and Ryuhei Kitamura from Japan and David Slade from the U.K. So the philosophy of the multicultural horror film was kept alive. Mm. Was there any kind of challenge adapting what you had been doing so well on cable to a feature film? Well, I don't want to talk about budget (laughs) in the process of selling the film. But, um, yeah, I mean, this was a very tight production. Everybody had, like, five days to shoot, and we were shooting in L.A. We had limited time and money, which was the same with Masters of Horror, but uh, we were also doing it as a feature film and doing it as a union film and all of these things. So... The ideas were big, and we had to make them seem bigger than what they cost. So, I mean, the production values of the film are really spectacular. I couldn't be happier with the people who made this film happen. And these filmmakers each has a vision, and they brought that vision to this, and that's the whole point of making this movie. These guys all have personalities, cinematic personalities, that we embraced in, in this feature film. Mm. Uh, were any compromises ma- had made in order to fit their visions? Into- Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of a compromise. I've never heard of a filmmaker who has ever made a compromise. <laughs> Especially in relation to the budget you're talking about. Well, we're, we're not, not talking, talking about. about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, the fact is that when you're given a budget, you try and write into that budget. We wrote them before we knew what the budgets were. But we knew that they would be contained. Now, that all holds true except for Ryuhei's movie, which is like five times bigger than anyone would imagine it could be. Uh, so maybe Ryuhei's the guy who should talk about that. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't matter you know, how much money or time you have. It's never going to be enough. You know? Yeah. My first American mo- movie was uh, Minna Me Train, and that was... Uh, $8 million budget. Yeah. At the time, I thought, like, you know, that's not going to be enough, you know, because you guys wanted me to make a movie look like a $15 million movie. But uh, think about now, 2018, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's makes. I don't think anybody's making $8 million horror movie anymore, mm-hmm. right? No. So <laughs> I, I look back, you know, I, was, I was so frustrated that, uh, you know, time is not enough and the money was not enough. But uh, so mm-hmm. compared to th- that... <laughs> I survived that, you know. And uh, this one, I I was uh, screaming at my line producer, Nancy, that, you know, I need at least three days for the fight. And we we had we had five days to shoot, so there's a big climax. So she was like, "Okay, you hey, you have to shoot the rest of the story in two days." Like, uh, I don't think I can do that. So <laughs> in the end, I only had a day and a half to do that. So uh, I don't I don't know how I did it. You know, I, I, <laughs> Alejandro, Alejandro asked me this morning, "How did you do that?" And I was like, "I don't remember how I did that." <laughs> well, I, no, I mean, I, we had, we have to give credit here to Matias, our DP, because uh, Ryuhei and I had the same DP, and, uh, and he was Director killing Director of photography, it. yeah. Uh, I thought my uh, story, uh, I had a lot of staff, too, and then when I got there, 
I, I, I had in my shot list some days where we would have 60-something setups, and I thought that was, like, insane, and people were like, oh, Ryuhei did over 100 setups. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I was getting that the whole time. I was like, the, 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 the running joke was like, fucking Ryuhei. <laughs> Can I say that? Well, yes. I already did. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, I mean, mine, I felt, was big, uh, but since he was the one that, that uh, shot first, everything, I think, after Ryuhei, everything was like uh, a walk in the park. <laughs> Joe, how did the schedule compare to your Roger Corman Fast and Furious days? Uh, it was right up there. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, but the, the difference is that uh, in the Corman days, you usually had a lot of locations. And a lot of time and money is spent getting from location to location. And that's obviously you're not shooting. So that's not going to be on the screen. Uh, we, Richard, wrote this story in a compact way so that we only had three locations. And one of them was, like, most of the days were just spent in one location. So every day you get more footage and more usable time to work. And that was, that was the plan. So a lot of people have been talking about the retro attributes of this, you know, and, and what the inspiration was for setting it in this decayed haunted movie theater was sort of the amicus films of the 70s, you know, the Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror and the like. But all of that was created after the individual scripts were done. So the, there was never an overriding concept. We were encouraging people to do whatever they wanted to do. Alejandro was writer-director. Uh, Joe had worked with uh, Richard Christian Matheson before and Ryuhei. Uh, worked with Sandra Bessero, who had several stories. So maybe we ought to talk about the process of that, how, Alejandro, you came up with your... I, I'm, I'm, well, I, I say that there are always like two ways you arrive to the idea. Sometimes you have something and you have to work on it for a long time, uh, craft it, like try to break the story, and sometimes you just find it. And that was the case here. I, I knew I wanted to... I'm, I, I always, I never do shorts, uh, and, and I feel Except very for VHS two yeah. and this, but other no, than ABCs of then. Oh Don't yeah, talk. ABCs. Well, how did I mix them up? Uh, but ABCs was three minutes. Yeah. Uh, and in this one, I, I feel comfortable doing features, writing features. So I said I'm gonna write the third act of a feature just the last uh, 20 minutes of a slasher because everyone has seen a hundred slashers and you can jump right into the story and, and you know where you are, you know what has happened. And then I, that's, that was a starting point. Well, what I, you pitched to me was... No, but, the, then, no yeah. but then I wanted to do something else and one day I was driving and that's where the rest of the story suddenly, boom, landed and I'm not going to say it now because I don't want to spoil everything but I had the whole story. I, I, I uh, pulled up, I called my wife and I told her the story. I said, listen to this, bah, 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 bah. I said everything and she was like, oh, that's cool. And I was like, oh, that's, that's like a good sign. And then I, I talked to Mick and I said the same. I pitched it and, and he loved it. And then we found the title. The pitch was, you know, the last act of a, of a, of a slasher film, but, but it takes a twist. And, yeah, and everyone who's here has seen that twist, which is kind of wild and insane <laughs> and wonderfully wacky. Yeah, and so it was pretty much that. I sat down and, and wrote it, I think, in one afternoon. And that, that was it. And Joe, you had worked with Richard before, and I know uh, I've worked with Richard before. We've co-written at times. And, no, I worked uh, it with goes, Richard's father, too. And you worked with Richard's father, the great Richard Matheson. So tell on me... A short, on a short, on an episode for Twilight Zone. Right, that, which is incredible because he wrote so many of the original Twilight mm -hmm. Zones. So tell me a little bit about the process of coming up with the story of Mirari. Uh... I, he remembers it better than there I do. There were a handful of story ideas, Richard, you had made. We have a mic that we'll bring down okay. so Richard can contribute as well. So, um, but I had known Richard from the Amazing Stories days, and we had been writing partners on other projects. And so I knew Richard would be great for this. He had done Masters of Horror. He wrote both of Toby Hooper's episodes. And because the two of you had worked together, I thought it would be a good pairing. And so Richard came up with some ideas that he sent to us. 
Yeah, and, and actually Joe picked the one that I liked the best, which was about plastic surgery. Um, and I knew that we wanted to keep it in a, a limited kind of, a, for production reasons, keep it in a limited uh, kind of a space. So it seemed like the perfect way to do it. I had always loved a film called Seconds, the old John Frankenheimer movie. And there's something about plastic surgery that is just um, like a, a, a great metaphor for all kinds of terrible things. Um, you know, thinking that if you change the way you look, it's going to change everything. And then I had read about um, this, this trend of fetishized body modification, where people go in and do not just, you know, distend their earlobes. No spoilers. But do, yeah, okay. But uh, I found that fascinating, too. And so, so as you say, I sent I sent a number of ideas to Joe, and I, that was the one that Joe picked. And the the, the appeal for me was that uh, it's the protagonist is a woman, uh, and it's all from her point of view. The whole story is from her point of view, and in fact, the story doesn't actually make sense unless it's from her point of view. And so, we were very careful to make sure that we were telling her story the way that she understood it to happen, uh, and. Um, the, she, make, makes it, she makes a bad choice. It's a couple of bad choices. <laughs> well, one of the things that's kind of a hallmark of, of your style is that you like to cast actors that you enjoyed from your youth. And Richard Chamberlain, Dr. Kildare, is, you cast him. He had retired, 82 years old at the time, and you invited him to play this doctor. And tell me about how that came through. Well, I didn't think he'd do it. I mean, I thought he seemed perfectly happy, you know, in, in his semi-retirement or whatever it, he was doing. And, Retired in Hawaii. And in Hawaii, although I think he, he finally came back. He, he, he said that uh, he and his partner were sitting, <laughs> they lived there for a long time, and they were sitting uh, on the beach uh, in, in the cabana watching the sunset, and one of them said, Geez, this is boring. <laughs> and they decided to move back down. I'm sure people in Montreal identify with that. <laughs> well, if you live there for a long time. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of stuff going on there. Um, anyway, he was, he was wonderful. He was, he's, he was very happy to work. He was very happy to see all these young people who knew who he was. And, uh, and, it was, and he brought a lot to the part. And, um, really did. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the fun things about the movie for me is, was working with him. And he had so much fun. He came in, you know, and he eats very healthy, but he was encouraged to join you with a burger and fries. He had his first burger and fries and milkshake in a, a number of years, apparently, and, <laughs> and enjoyed it quite a bit, although I don't think he made it a habit of Now, a lot of your stuff, especially recently, has had a lot of social commentary. I mean, Second World War for HBO, but, uh, or Civil War. Um, uh, but Homecoming, Screwfly, and this even though it is a little more broad than those films, um, the social commentary in the world of the setting of horror well, is something... Well, it's a class thing. I mean, you know, this, this, all, all, the, all the people who are mean to this girl are all rich. <laughs> She's not. Funny that. <laughs> but social, injecting social consciousness into horror films has been something... Roger has done it for years, uh, or he says he has. Well, it's been, it's been, the, the genre has been known for, for being supposedly subversive. Uh, some of it comes with the territory, and some of it is, you know, literally put in there by the people who, who write and direct the stuff. But, you know, it, it, the, the thing I did for you for Homecoming was, was, was a blunt uh, screed, which is not, it, it was not subtle at all. It was just a, sort of a cry for help. Uh, but everything else, it, it, the Screwfly Solution, which is about a plague that makes men want to kill women, uh, is um, still a pretty chilling view today. Because when you see some of the stuff that goes on, the misogyny and the level of it, uh, it, it's, um, it seems kind of prescient. Well, your films are known for being very playful, and Screwfly is your least it's playful the film. Least fun, least funny thing I ever did. It's got, it's got no humor in it at all. It's so, it's so grim. And I had wanted to do it as a feature film when I worked for Roger, but I couldn't get the rights. In fact, I wanted to do it for the first season of Masters of Horror, and we couldn't get the rights. We finally got the rights. I did the film. I looked at it and I said, I must have been crazy to think that I could make this as a feature film. It's so goddamn depressing that nobody would pay to see it. <laughs> well, depressing is not the byword on, on Masters of Horror. And Ryuhei is also known for a particular style that is rather wildly over the top and not afraid of a, a little of the red. So <laughs> tell me, I know Sandra... Uh, 
had come up with a lot of stories, and and I knew the two of you would would kind of have a meeting of minds and tell me about what you were looking for to do here when when I asked you to do the movie. I mean, to me, Nightmare Cinema is all about you. You know, yeah. uh, we've been friends for quite a long time now, and you know, we even uh, wrote a script together, yeah. which we. One day we were going to make it. In Okinawa. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, platoon meets grudge meets predator. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you want to you see the movie, right? <laughs> we wrote the script together so uh, Mick understands, you know, uh, how I think and what I like and what I want to do. So uh, We met at a screening of Midnight Meat Train, which yes. blew me away, which is why he's here. Yeah. Mm. Yes, so... Uh, when we started talking about it, and I had my own idea, which I wrote myself for this project called, uh, used to call Paris, I Love You. Oh, yeah. yeah. Then they changed the title into Fear Paris. And nobody knows when this project is really going to happen. It's never going to happen. <laughs> never going to happen. I'm one of the, you were there. Yeah. Vincenzo Natale was there, right? Yeah, it'll never happen. And Wes Craven did uh, <laughs> a Paris. Uh, uh, he did Paris, I Love yeah. You. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Paris, I'll Kill You, it was called. Oh, yeah. Paris, oh, I'll yeah. Kill You. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was a, yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of a twisted version of that. Of right? that, yeah. Yes. So Paris, I Kill You, Fear Paris, and I wrote the story for that, but uh, I know that that's never going to happen. So uh, first I thought about doing it, but then, you know, you, mix and you told me to, I think, I think you know, you and, you and Sandra will be the perfect match. And I started talking to Sandra, and you were right. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sandra she, is a best-selling she, novelist and filmmaker in Mexico City, and this is her first screenplay in English. So yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, we we started you know, we started trading ideas, and you know when uh, Sandra you sent me my sheet, I, I just knew that this is this is the one. You know, I don't know how how nicest person like you came up with that twisted you know <laughs> idea. Which, she might which say the same some to people you. gonna attack me for doing that. <laughs> so yeah. how did you come up with that idea? <laughs> Well, it was very funny to work with you. When Mick invited me, yeah, I sent you several. I remember that I sent you several stories and everything. And, uh, but my shit, yeah, it was the perfect match. It was very funny. I mean, it had uh, blood and creepy kids and a creepy father and Benedict. Yes. I remember the name and everything. And uh, when you came with all your suggestions and everything, it was great. Mm. Yeah, I love also... Yeah, all these kind of weapons and all that. And I've well, it's yours. also it's it's an exorcism story, so you might want to let the audience know that you know where that came from, being of Latin <laughs> heritage. Um, the sanguinary Catholicism of this is probably something deeply rooted in your own background. Yeah, it's a, it's an exorcism story, but I wanted to write it more original. You know, not oh, just yeah. a kid that uh, praise and everything. No, no. Something more creepy. Something more... Uh, yeah, more sanguinary. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when I saw Ryuhei's uh, movies and everything, I thought, this is going to be perfect. This is going to be so much fun. I remember that I went to the shooting uh, two or three days, something like that. And you told me, you know, you shouldn't go now because tomorrow we're going to have so much blood that we have to cover with plastics all the cameras and all the people and everything so we don't get splat with that. <laughs> but it was really fun. I think when you write, you have to, to, to be funny, you know? Yeah. Well, Ryuhei, tell us about the complications of shooting what is an amazing climactic scene, a very... Uh, Kitamurian scene uh, in an actual church, the church from John Carpenter's The Fog, by the way. Yeah, that, that was the only church let us do that. <laughs> that Father Michael was very liberal. A crazy thing happens at the end, the final five minutes of the movie, and and you know that was the only church we found in California to let us do that. Then we found out it was the church that actually John Carpenter shot the fog. <laughs> so like that was like, yeah, that, that was the that was that was a treasure we found. And but like I said, you know, we only had five days to shoot, and I only had a day and a half to shoot that big climax, which is kind of action. <laughs> and I've done this kind of battle sequence many times, but uh, this time it was with like twenty. 
little girls. <laughs> and unlike what I do in the movie, you know, myself, I, I'm a very nice person, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because I'm part of the Nice Guy production. You know? That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so, of course, the safety first, and, and I, don't want, I don't want the little girls to be afraid or, you know, get hurt. So um, it, 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 it was challenging. And when you shoot about... You know, should try to figure out the fight sequence between two person versus like twenty little girl. You can't really design, you know, until you are on the set and you actually sees the girls coming in. So uh, I kind of, you know, improvised everything with my stunt coordinator <laughs> <laughs> for a day and a half. And the very first big moment where. This little girl dies. Yes. In a, in a very, we'll uh, just put it that way. <laughs> very dramatic way. You know, the, the, she was great and uh, she cried because the blood gag was a little bit bigger than she was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a Kitamura uh, <laughs> film? Seriously? <laughs> Obviously, she never saw my, my movie, right? <laughs> so she cried, but. Uh, you know, uh, I try to be nice to her and uh, her mom <laughs> and I'm her dad. So uh, in the end, everybody loved me and uh, they were having fun. <laughs> well, so no, no children got, got home. How do you give the What do you tell them? To tell the I just basically act myself and show them how, how, okay. how, how to scream, how to run, how to attack. <laughs> That's what I did. So David Slade isn't here, but Lawrence Connolly, who uh, wrote the screenplay with him and wrote the original story it was based on, Traumatic Descent, is with us. So tell, tell us how that came about, that story, and how it almost became a movie and eventually ended up here. Yes, it, it goes back to uh, 2000, 2000, actually, uh, when David and Charlie Cantor, David Slade and Charlie Cantor, contacted me from London, and they had seen a copy of Borderlands 3, uh, an anthology edited by Tom Monteleone, and it had the story Traumatic Descent in it. And they were both young, aggressive filmmakers, artists, writers, and they wanted to do a project together. And David said to Charlie, this is it. This is the one that we're going to do. Contact this guy and see if he'll meet with you and, uh, and, and talk about a feature-length script. And uh, they contacted me. Charlie came to the States. Um, six months later, I went to London. We got hooked up with a um, production company. And uh, the film, the story was under option. And the option was renewed for years. And, then and finally, years and years. And that's it. And, and nothing happened. Charlie wrote um, a, a couple of terrific scripts. Those scripts still exist. We still have feature-length scripts for um, This Way to Egress. Charlie passed away um, at very young. And that is why this film that we just did, uh, the Egress segment, is dedicated to Charlie, Charlie Cantor. Cantor. And Charlie died, and the film that we had planned to do kind of got forgotten, passed on. David came to L.A. and began to work on other films, uh, Hard Candy and um, Twilight Eclipse, 30 Days of Night. And it just seemed as if this was always going to be the next film. And then well, magic happened. You <laughs> gave him the opportunity to do it as a short film. And in 2015, we, re we resurrected it. And uh, David and I put together the script based on the story, taking the dialogue right from the story. Well, let's just that. let the audience know basically the concept that you and David came up with, what this film is. It's kind of a descent into madness in the first person. And this is a story that works on the, you know, it's, it's very human condition that we see the world through our emotions. So if we are happy, the world is happy and all looks well. But when things start going wrong and they keep going wrong, the world just starts to look ugly. And this is about a woman that something traumatic has happened to her and it's alluded to in the course of the film. And she is just gradually going down deeper and the world is getting uglier and uglier and people are getting uglier and uglier until finally it becomes unbearable and she has to act out and finally... And, and stop there. We'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> but that was it. It's it, it just, it, it is so exciting to have this actually um, have, have 
be, be part of uh, Nightmare Cinema. And to see it on the screen last night after 17 years of brainstorming this with David. Let's talk a little about the festival experience. Your film uh, world premiered here at Fantasia, and it seems like film festivals, not just Fantasia, are, are really doing uh, so much for getting smaller films like yours out into the world because distribution is so difficult these days. So many films go right to VOD now. They don't even go to DVD. Uh, how important are festivals to all, each of you? You've all been regulars on the film festival circuit, and you know, how is this going to benefit Nightmare Cinema. Well, specifically with Nightmare Cinema, this would not exist if it weren't for these international festivals I've gone to, where I learned that horror movies are for adults everywhere except North America. Um, you know, going to South Korea and to Spain and to Australia and going all around the world and seeing what movies are in countries other than the U.S. was an eye-opening experience and it made me want to do something that that highlights the filmmaking from around the world. And, you know, this is where the word of mouth begins. Here, Fantasia is an incredibly important... The first time I was here, and the last time I was here, was 14 years ago with Riding the Bullet, where I was able to show another independent feature here to an audience that wants to like the genre films and that welcomes them with open arms. And this is an incredibly great place for our first screening to have been. And to, you know, uh, Masters of Horror was a huge success around the world. And that's what introduced me to these festivals around the world where I began to be invited. And it's been an eye-opening experience and a very important part of my life and my career. And also, festivals are the only place that a lot of people can get their films shown, uh, particularly in the short subject field. I mean, there's a lot of shorts at this festival. And um, shorts are the great way to break in for people who are just starting out because the technology now exists for you to actually make a perfectly good-looking short that you can finish and shoot yourself. Uh, and then the problem is, how do you get anybody to watch it? And, you know, except for Uncle Bill and Aunt Emma, <laughs> you know. You can't put it on YouTube because then there's 150 billion other things on YouTube. How is anybody going to find it? So the only way that you can really get any notoriety is to get it into a festival. And even there, you've got a lot of competition because, as with this festival, there's a lot of other shorts. But if you can either uh, find somebody who writes about it and picks you out specifically, or you meet another person who likes the short and also is in production and can help you go to some other level, uh, it, it's, it, you've gotta, you can't just send your short. You've got to go with your short. It's, it, it's, it's really important to attend, even if you have to, you know give up drugs for a week. <laughs> Why would you? You have to really be there. You'll find another one. <laughs> you well, another places. thing, too, specifically, I met Sandra at a festival in Mexico, and she would not have been a writer on this movie had I not seen her uh, and, and met her and, and known how talented she was and passionate about this and been a Latin voice in this mixed cultural movie. You saw one of the dead at film festivals. I saw one of the dead twice at film festivals, and it's. I met Alejandro when John Landis brought him as a guest to one of the Masters of Horror dinners, and I met him and found he was the sweetest guy who had oh. made this fantastic movie. That you know, that's why Alejandro's part of this but, because of the festival. But, but I think it, I think it was John Landis who told me that. Well, he invited me to the Masters of Horror. And then he thought, wait, what if Mick gets angry? <laughs> and he went to you and said, hey, I just invited this uh, Cuban filmmaker. And you had seen Juan, and you were like, oh, one of the dead, yeah. So I, I walked in, and the first uh, thing I saw was John and you, and you were really happy and welcomed me. So that was great. But yeah, that was because of film festivals. Yeah, exactly. And he was on the jury and he gave me an award. So, yeah, even better. <laughs> Big paying work, too. Yeah. <laughs> Ryuhei, you've done lots of festivals. <laughs> yes, uh, film festival is very special to me because uh, 20 years ago I made this crazy zombie movie called Versus. And <laughs> I was nobody, no money, no future guy in Japan. And in Japan, nobody believed in me. So uh, I had to you know, lend a lot of money to my friends to create, finish the movie. And even though I finished the movie, I knew that, you know, I don't get a spotlight if I start selling it in Japan. So I, I submitted into a 
festival Jérôme in France. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the big buzz started to spread out. And North America, I went to uh, uh, Toronto Midnight Madness, and that's basically rocket started my career. And so, you know, I, I owe film festival. And exactly 10 years ago, I was here at uh, Fantasia for the first time with Midnight Me Train. And that year was like uh, my worst year in my life. Because Midnight Me Train, which the movie I was so proud of, got, got into this fucked up uh, studio politics. And basically, before two months, they destroyed the movie. You know, it was, the movie was supposed to come out 2000 theater. And then suddenly something happened and they killed the movie. So I was like, what, what did I do to deserve this, right? Then one this brightness in my life was like, you know, this, you guys invited for Fantasia. And you know, finally, this movie with this you know, crazy audience of Fantasia, you know, <laughs> that was the first time I screened the movie and I got a great reaction. That gave me you know, power to move on. You know, that, that's, that's the reason I'm still doing that. You know, <laughs> that was the only time I almost gave up my life. You know, wow. that's, uh, that was that hard. You know. But Fantasia gave me energy, so film festival is very special to me. And let me add, not, not just uh, film festivals, but genre film festivals. And just, uh, Joe was saying shorts, but actually you get to find features from all over the world that would probably, uh, wouldn't see the light if, if it wasn't because they are discovered at film festivals, like uh, genre film festivals. In my case, uh, one of the dead premiere at Toronto, and it, that was fine. But then we went to Fantastic Fest in Austin and then it exploded and it started doing all the genre film festivals and you get to know all these great filmmakers from all over the world and also the audiences that really are into this kind of movie and that was like a life-changing thing for me. Now I, when I sit down, t- I, I felt for the first time I was like, oh, this is my people. Like, <laughs> this is where I belong. And, and now when I sit down to write, I'm thinking, how would this uh, scene play with this audience? Uh, yeah. So. Speaking of the audience, do you want to take some questions from sure, our, let's uh, do. From our crowd? Yeah, we have a microphone that will be passed about. So any questions here? Up, naturally way up here. <laughs> You're going to get a workout. So I was wondering, I mean, this is probably mostly for uh, Mick. You've worked on a couple uh, anthologies over the years. How do you decide, and, or rather, who decides the sequence of the segments and how it flows? Mostly, in, in the case of this movie, I decided with a little help from Joe, and I'll explain that. Um, you know, we knew Alejandro's was starting off with a bang, because Ale's is sort of a retro 80s slasher movie is what you think you're getting. And it literally starts, it hits the ground running. It really moves, and it's going, and it goes batshit. And so we knew we wanted the second one to be, uh, there were a couple of quiet ones. We knew we wanted to take it down a notch and then ramp up right in the middle with the madness of Mashit. And uh, so that laid itself out obviously and then we wanted to go quiet again for the fourth one and then end with you know kind of a more maybe mainstream or traditional ghost story that gets kind of emo um, so originally Joe's Marari was going to be fourth and uh, uh, This Way to Egress was going to be second and Joe do you remember what you said? I remember what I said I said all these, I, I, he, he's got like all these makeups. By the time they get to, by the time they get to my movie, all the, I've only got two makeups in my movie, <laughs> and they're at the end of the story. And if they don't, if we don't put them up early, then they're going to be like, so what? By the time we get to the end of the picture, overwhelmed. So, so we switched. Uh, we switched spots. Yeah, it was, it was a really brilliant revelation that I was too close to see. Is that you know Joe's really has, not to spoil anything, but it really does pay off with a single, a couple of looks at these makeups, whereas This Way to Egress has lots of creepy faces that, and they spill out over the course of the story. So the balance really worked so much better in, in that regard, and it was really a smart move. And some, but some, some anthologies are actually planned to be in a certain order, depending on what the linking story is. 
but in this case, the episodes preceded the linking story. Yeah, yeah, they, but but the script it was decided before we started shooting what the order was. But it was during production that Joe read the whole script of everybody's and and made that that astute observation. Mm-hmm. Some more questions from you guys? Yeah, back here. Back here. Um, Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Uh, it's a question to all of you, actually, pertaining to uh, sound and score in such a you know tight schedule and small budget. How'd you guys go ahead and make that as effective as it was? Uh, you want to start, Riway? Yeah, uh, for my episode, I uh, I decided to when I read the Sandra's script, I decided to <clears throat> bring out my uh, love. An influence from uh, 80s Italian horror movies, <laughs> which I never used in my previous movies. So uh, obviously, the, when it comes to music, I wanted to do this, you know, hardcore Italian prog rock. So I talked <laughs> to my composer and um, I told him that, that I want to do the Italian prog rock, but I don't want to just mimic, you know, the sound of the goblin. So, uh, and I could have gotten Claudio Simonetti. I told him, yes, yes, because he, he did <laughs> two Masters of Horror with Dario Argento. <laughs> yes, I mean that, that would have been great too. But uh, I, I, I'm not. I, I don't feel like you know doing doing the exact same thing. So I, I discussed with my composer, and it was, yes, I need this Italian prog rock sound, but something something different than you know just uh, mimicking them. But uh, the funny thing we did was, you know, so we basically formed a band, you know. We live in L.A., so we have lots of musician friends. So <laughs> we, we brought in drummer, bassist, guitar player, keyboard player into studio, and I sh- screened them the rough cut of my movie, and I basically told them to, you know, just improvise and perform, you know, uh, to the movie. So we basically did the live recording, which turns out, I, I think, it was great. And... What also was good about that was in the live recording was, you know, so later when it comes to, you know, the, towards the end of the entire production, of course, the producer is going to come back to tell me, can you take out 30 seconds more, <laughs> one minute more, two minutes more if possible? So, but I said, I'm sorry I can't because I live recorded everything. Yeah. So this is not a computer, you know, programming. So uh, <laughs> I cannot do that. I don't want to destroy the groove of the sound. So, no changes. <laughs> so you gave me the good reason to say no. <laughs> Now, my usual composer, Nicholas Pike, was not available, but I had worked with Richard Band, who's Charlie Band's brother, by the way, uh, did an episode of Masters of Horror with me, and he did a great job. So I went to Richard, and we knew we wanted a real orchestral kind of score, something that sounded full and organic and not electronic. And um, so Richard had done exactly that on Valerie on the Stairs for Masters of Horror. And so I used Richard for Dead and for the wraparounds, and then I suggested him to Joe. Yeah, because I, the guy that I was usually used, uh, he's moved to Vancouver Island, and it's impossible to get him to do anything. Um, <laughs> so um, I, 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 I knew Richard uh, from a long time ago, and uh, he... Uh, he did a, a, a he did a great job. It's it's interesting because when when you make these movies, you know, you have to put a temp score on in order to show it to people. And the the the, the thing that happens is that the more you watch the temp score, the more you fall in love with it. So a lot of times when the composer comes in and you play him the temp score and he does something different, you go, no, 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 no. that's not what it's supposed to sound like. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's a Brad Pitt movie uh, called, uh, is it called The Gun or the, the Rifle or the, some, some Mexican set Brad Pitt movie where you can listen to the movie and you can tell which Ennio Morricone scores were used for the temp up because they copied them. You know, they just they just moved them around a little bit, but they're they're obviously this is what the, we must have gone back and said, no, no, make it sound just like this. And you know, there's a certain point where if you make it just sound just like that, you're going to get sued. So <laughs> you have to be careful. Uh, but uh, but Richard managed to come up with something that was very similar to the stuff that we used, which was mostly Pino Donaggio from Carrie, uh, and yet uh, was different enough that it 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 it, it still was better, and also. All of these things get so much better when they're color timed and when they have sound effects and when they're mixed. I mean, it's it's uh, it's such a it's such a boost 
in quality when you finally see it together with all of that stuff that it's it's actually very encouraging a movie feels bigger with a bigger score too you know this is an independent movie that feels like a studio movie at a certain level because of the quality of of, of the music and you can also emulate instruments beautifully these days digitally which you never used to be able to do it would always sound tinny or electronic or fake or inorganic but you're able to get organic sounding because there's samples of actual uh, acoustic instruments that these guys will use electronically to create something of, of a scope that did not seem possible in the world of independent film before, especially in the 80s. <laughs> 80s slasher movies have the tiniest, most kind of uh, Farfisa-sounding uh, soundtracks that you can imagine. Ali. I, I, um, oh. Is Kent here? No, he, 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 he has left, oh, okay. uh, but he's amazing. Um, and by the way, uh, Mike Mendes, our editor, did a great job with the Temps course. Uh, you really got used yeah. to, to, to those. Mike is a writer-director of some yeah. note himself, and he, was, he edited our, uh, our film and did an amazing job temping everybody. Yeah, and he's amazing. And I work, I have my uh, composer, I work with uh, Kyle Newmaster, who was here for the premiere but already left. Uh, we first worked together in my ABCs of Dead 2 short, and I love Kyle, and we have like the same sensibilities. And for this one, um, it, well, he read the screenplay, and, and he asked me, what do you think we should do? And I said, I want a blockbuster soundtrack. Uh, I want this to sound like a big movie. And, and he just went and did a great job. Uh, and I'm, I don't want to get into details because I don't want to get spoilerish. But there's a genre change uh, in the <laughs> screenplay, and, and so we were working uh, one thing, but trying to get the sounds of what's going to happen later here. And I don't know. He just did a fantastic job. I gotta say, Kyle really kicked its ass, yeah. and and your band <laughs> also was. So perfectly giallo. I mean, basically, we have a Mexican writer and a Japanese director making an Italian exorcism movie. <laughs> that just really, it, I think everyone here has seen the movie and would agree with me that it maybe goes apeshit. So, uh, anyway, Tony? Um, let's talk about the future of Nightmare Cinema. Where do you go from here? There's a great setup for future chapters <coughs> at the end. Well, you know, it goes back to the original concept. What I would love is for this t theatrical feature film, which it was made to be, uh, would maybe spawn either another couple of Nightmare Cinema uh, anthologies, but the ideal would be if we could do a series a la Masters of Horror where we do, uh, but much more international in tone, getting... Uh, a, a mix of, of gender and, and, per, and nas nationalities and, and just the widest, most diverse set of, of filmmakers in the genre, writers, directors, performers, all of that. You know, to be able to do that on a weekly basis would be thrilling for me. Mm. What are the uh, theatrical plans at this point? We are right now uh, working on the distribution plans. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is in the mix, mm. in flux. I'd love also to talk about um, your choice for a Crypt Keeper, Mickey Rourke, <laughs> no. and uh, how, how you came to cast him and what he was like to work with. Well, one of our producers, one of the owners of the company, Sinalu, that made the film, that financed the film, is Mark Canton, who used to be the president of Warner Brothers. Actually, he became the president of Columbia Studios, during production on Sleepwalkers. When we started Sleepwalkers, Frank Price was the head of Columbia, and he said, we're never going to put out a m movie with a son fucking his mother as long as I'm ahead of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Halfway into production, Mark Canton came in, and he had no such qualms. So, um, so I had known Mark from then, but Mark was friends with Mickey Rourke, and he thought it would be a great idea to get an Academy Award-nominated actor to be our crypt keeper to, to tie these things together. And I thought it was a great idea. I had heard stories about Mickey being quite a character and a strong personality. And, uh, you know, some people didn't have a great experience with him. But I called my friend Robert Rodriguez and said, you know, we're gonna be, I'm going to be working with Mickey. And um, what was your experience? And Robert, I think, is the Mickey whisperer. 
and he really had he really had a good experience with him and I was very intimidated by the idea of this guy who is as cut as he looks in the film. He's big and he takes no shit from anyone. Fortunately, I'm not a shit giver. So um, we actually had a really good time. He had a good time and I don't think he expected to. Um, you know, he came in, okay, here's the job, I'm doing this horror movie and the like, but you know, encouraging him to try things that Maybe he would have ideas. Well, he did have ideas about the wardrobe, which he had created on his own, <laughs> which is rather stylish and remarkable without us having any input until the day we showed up on set. And <laughs> Mick, meet Mickey and his wardrobe. Uh, and that was an experience. But um, working with him actually turned out to be a lot of fun. I, I really had a good time with him, and I, you know, if we continue this uh, in other formats, uh, I assume Mickey would be coming back, and it was great. He didn't work a lot of days, but like at the end of the first day at ten o'clock, it's like I'm done, and, <laughs> and that was the end of Mickey Rourke. Then I haven't seen him since. So. How come the uh, projectionist is missing from the first segment? Um, just a, setting up a sense of mystery, not. Not making it a predictable. It's not intended to be tales from the crypt. Right. It's not really hosted. It's not introduced with jokes and double entendre and you know, mm-hmm. hello bo- boils and ghouls kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, but I just wanted to hold off. I, you notice there's no opening titles either. There's mm-hmm. nothing. There's no theme music. Anything. It just starts with a girl talking on the phone and finding herself in front of a marquee of an old shutdown movie theater nobody knew existed in this neighborhood, with her name starring in the movie that's playing. So it, we just wanted to go right into it, just the way Alejandro said he wanted to start his slasher movie without the first two acts because we've seen that. We know how that goes. So just going right into it, cutting to the chase, especially when you've got five stories uh, and two hours is long for a horror movie. So we just didn't want to go beyond that. And there we are. Question up here. I think we actually had a third question over there. Do you have time? You bet. Really great movie. Thank you. Um, Thank you. (laughs) I just had a quick question. Uh, You're obviously all masters of the horror genre, but um, with the evolution of film, do you guys find that you have to incorporate other genres as well to keep a modern audience interested, like sci-fi and comedy? Who wants to take it? Alec, go Well, I do it, but because it's something I do, not... I, I, I never think... I never think about, like, oh, modern audiences, I have to do something to keep them... Int- I, my main thing is to keep me interested. <laughs> <laughs> when I sit down to write, I get bored really easily. So uh, I, have, I, 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 have, I, I need to be having fun while I'm writing. And if you were looking at me while I was writing this, I, I had, like, a smile. Like, I was, like, <laughs> hung in there and with a big smile. When, when, when my wife walks by and sees me smiling like that, she knows I'm, kill- I'm killing someone. <laughs> and, um, and that was the main thing. I, I do like to mix uh, genres. In this case, well, it's a... It's a horror comedy, it's a slasher, but then it's something else too. And, but it wasn't, it, I, I wasn't trying to uh, do something, I wouldn't say for modern audiences or something like that. I'm just like trying to have fun. Also, horror and comedy are two things yeah. that are based on surprise. And films evolve, audiences evolve, and filmmakers have to evolve as well. You always want to surprise your audience. You always want to do something before they think of it, you want to think of it. And especially in the horror genre, and if you can do it in a stylish way and incorporate it into real life, make it feel genuine uh, and, and surprise, it's easy to calcify. I can't tell you how many filmmakers I've talked to who go, oh, I know how to scare you, I can do this, and it'll be like, and they, you know, there are filmmakers I know who've been working a long time who their films look the same now as they did then. And some of them it works for them and some not. But, um, you know, it's, it's like a shark has to keep swimming or it dies, you know, evolve or die. And calcifying is, is a way 
to not keep working because you know you you make movies because you love movies and if you love movies you love where movies evolve and where they're going not just where they've been and I think looking forward is the most exciting part of filmmaking or any kind of art let me add something because well, mixing and horror and comedy, one of the reasons I do that is because of this gentleman right here. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> because he, He's pointing he, to Joe Dante. Yeah, he way. was a great uh, influence growing up, and I can't tell you how many times I have watched Gremlins. And today, in one of the reviews, I read this great thing that I'm going to read now, it says about my short, it says, there's so much bonkers in Bruges's entry that it at times feels like it could have been directed by Joe Dante. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me, for me, that's the best compliment. I, I hope you don't take it as like the opposite. But like, when I was, like, that made my day. I was like, yeah. So there you go. That's why I mix uh, genres. I'm proud to say that I was actually, I have a line in The Howling, and, uh, and Joe is in Sleepwalkers as well. I am. I, have also, I have also a line. His line is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine was written by John Sayles. <laughs> what was it? My line in The Howling was, what is this? <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> and every horror movie needs that line. <laughs> How did you carve up the running time uh, with your directors on this film? You had, you had the five directors, the wraparound, like who got 15 minutes, who got 20 minutes? Who got no, no, they all, they all came to us at one point and said, you've got to make everything shorter. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he couldn't. <laughs> so we had to make ours shorter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, prayer. Uh, really, you never know how long a film is going to be based on its script. You, you estimate a minute a page. And sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not. A page in a Ryuhei Kitamura movie could be 15 minutes long. <laughs> and, you know, it really, we knew it had to be under two hours just to be able to get it booked in theaters and, and to sell it. A genre film over two hours had better be made by, with really big movie stars. And so we, I don't know how we made it happen, but we are just a hair under two hours. And, you know, everybody, basically it was an average of five days for each of the, of the films. And I, I don't like calling them shorts because this is a movie. And there are chapters in this movie. There's segments in the movie. They're not shorts. They're part of a feature film. And, and I like to think of nightmare cinema as a whole rather than just segments. So, but, you know, we, we lucked out. We were able to make it work at two hours. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Credits alone run an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another reason there's no credits in the front. <laughs> Any other questions in the audience? Right here. Hang on, hang on. Let me get you a microphone. Right up front here. Uh, can you talk about uh, locations? You talked a little bit about the church, but the, there was the theater, which is amazing. How do you, yeah. you found that? Well, our line producer, Nancy Leopardi, is an amazing producer, and she also found all of the locations. She was our location manager, too. Uh, I half of the credit for this movie is Nancy. She was amazing. Uh, the Rialto Theater in South Pasadena has been shut down for a dozen years. They have occasional events there, but scenes in La La Land were shot there. Robert Altman's The Player was shot there. And we were lucky. We knew we had to get an old movie theater, you know, a movie palace. This is a neighborhood movie a palace. A single screen. Movie a palace. single screen, yeah. With a big marquee. And we found that. I wrote it not knowing where we would shoot it or even what city we would shoot it in. And we managed to find it there. And then there's an old closed hospital called Daniel Freeman Hospital in South L.A. that we used for dead. Um, and uh, Ryuhei um, had two locations in Altadena. One was a, a mortuary and mm -hmm. one was a, uh, a, a church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and those were both found by Nancy as well. And then the production value you get from these actual locations, you know, to play a Catholic high school, an East L.A. high school, and these locations in Altadena were amazing. Joe, you had an empty office building. Uh, in it was Glen an empty here. office building that had once been um, some kind of hospital of some sort. Oh, uh, was it? I didn't know it, was it had a double, been a medical facility. But it had been closed for a long time. It's probably dem- dem- demolished by now. <laughs> no doubt, in the year since we shot it. We found a great location for mine because we needed uh, woods, we needed uh, two cabins, and we found a place that had all that, and it was mm, it was something to shoot movies. But the thing is that we didn't know until we started. Like apparently, the previous people that shot there was a horror movie, and they messed everything up or something, and we couldn't. Like when we went in, we found out that we couldn't have smoke and blood <laughs> <laughs> and my my killer is called a welder <laughs> for a reason <laughs> and blood okay that was tricky and and the effects were practical so we actually had tons of blood and it's and a historic building so you couldn't do anything to the logs either oh yeah 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 we couldn't like oh yeah that cap. was super Tricky, you like, couldn't put butcher knives through a person into the yeah, wall, so you actually had to build. Yeah, fake there's wall. there's this person that gets shot and something happens, <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's say that there was a lot of splatter there, and we had to figure out a way to do it, and we took all the precautions, and even then we had to shut down for one hour to clean the mess, <laughs> which wasn't a mess, but I don't know. There's, I mean. It's horror. There's going to be blood. (laughs) (laughs) There will be blood. Yeah. And then Ryuhei's, I mean, the cleanup in that church was outrageous. (laughs) (laughs) And Slades. Slades, I mean, he's not here, but I look at that, and the first time I saw Slades, I thought it was... CG, and it was uh, Lauren Fitzsimmons, our production designer, who was No, we were, yeah, Lauren Fitzsimmons is astonishing. Everybody on the crew gave way more than than they were paid for, but they were all fantastic. Uh, Some of the best people I've ever worked with, and KNB did the makeup effects for all of them, except David's, uh, Vincent Van Dyke did that. But the makeup effects and everything are just spectacular and phenomenal but David Slade's episode was shot in a former LA Times building which is now an LA government building Los Angeles government city building that we shot in on the weekend so that we could screw it up and every time I see it I, with Nancy, the line producer, I can see her face blanch remembering the cleanup of that horrible, horrible mess and how furious the people who owned the building were. So. What made Dave, David shoot his in black and white? David had just done an episode of Black Mirror in black and white. I don't know if you saw it with the robot dog. A, a, an amazing episode. And he fell in love with that. And for the look of this mental descent in this kind of clinical office building and everything, the hallways and all, the black and white feel of it makes it even more disturbing and dark. And, and, and I think that stylistically, just he was in love with the camera that he'd shot his black mirror with, which he says will not shoot color. I don't know how that's technically possible, <laughs> but, but that's what he said. And we use that in case the uh, financial producers uh, had any objection to a black and white segment. Well, sorry, it's shot in black and white. You can't change it. So, uh, but, um, yeah, he, he had done that so successfully. And I love the idea that there's a black and white one in the middle of this, mm-hmm. in this movie. So we only have time for another question or two, and then we're going to wrap it up. So anything from the audience? One more here. By the way, while, while the microphone gets there, I wanted to start the rumor that David, since he's not here, I wanted to start the rumor that he's colorblind, and that's why it was black and white. <laughs> <laughs> when they saw it, they were like, hey, why is this black and white? And he was like, is it black and white? <laughs> Spread the it. word. <laughs> well, thanks for coming, everybody. Um, Considering your, uh, I just wanted to know about you as people, because uh, since you're all here together, and you can answer, answer this right now, you've seen so many horror movies, you spent your life making horror movies, what actually scares you? Like, what, 
Have you seen something on screen that actually can still scare you after Have you turned the news on lately? (laughs) You're lucky you're in Canada. (laughs) Well, for me personally, yeah, I think A Quiet Place was a fantastic movie. Um, Hereditary was great. Uh, uh, You know, Autopsy of Jane Doe. But that scares me in ways that are really fun and enjoyable. To me, you know, rubber monsters don't scare me, uh, serial killers and hatchet killers and things like that. I don't expect that to happen to me. But it's not a very entertaining answer, but what truly frightens me is the safety and health of the people I care about. You know, that, I'm a human being first, and then I'm a filmmaker after that. And uh, fear, to me, that's why I'm making movies more about mortality from riding the bullet even to dead. It's a ghost story, but it's also about life. And uh, I've lost a lot of people close to me. And the more you lose, the deeper you get as a human being and as an artist. And so I would like to carry that along as, as, as I continue to evolve. Next. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said it all, Mick, but... Uh... <laughs> The scariest thing for me is being a film director. <laughs> this is extremely unstable job, and <laughs> I, I, I don't get you know monthly salary or insurance or you know. <laughs> so uh, that fear drives me to keep on making movies. <laughs> Not, fear of not working is definitely a right <laughs> That's answer. a motivator. It's, it's a big motivator. <laughs> yeah, they nailed it. <laughs> but I think, well, me saying something that it's also true, I mean, I think horror is a, like a mirror that has to show us the monster that we can become. And I think uh, going back to what Joe was saying, look at the news. Horror, horror belongs to its time. And uh, the news are scary. And horror usually reflects uh, what's happening in society around that time. So uh, I, I go back to the news, and then you start from there and build your monsters. Well, I want to thank everybody for this live episode of Postmortem here at the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal. I want to thank Tony Timpone for helping me out here, and Alejandro Bruges, Joe Dante, Ryuhei Kitamura, Richard Christian Matheson, Lawrence Connolly, and Sandra Besseril for being here, and, and for everyone who attended last night. Thank you so much for one of the best nights of my life. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.